remember seeing the first puck drop. Those emotions when a player scores. The cheers from the fans and the feeling when your favorite player shoots and scores. Your hockey heroes laced up their skates, taped up their sticks, and hit the ice. Remember the passion they played with. The passion you felt with every game. Win or lose. Now, you can rekindle those memories with hockey players of the past. Get insights on how they felt on and off the ice. Hear interviews from coaches, referees, and thoughts from their fans. This is the Old Time Hockey UK Podcast with your host, Ken Abbott. Hi guys, a very warm welcome to the Old Time Hockey UK podcast. Whether you're a first-timer or a long-timer, it's great to have you here. I'm your host, Ken Abbott, and if you're like me and love listening to hockey memories, stories and anecdotes from the past, then you're in exactly the right place. In today's show, I chat with former Bracknell Bees and Sheffield Steelers Canadian D-man Shane McCosh. Shane reveals how he once loaned a team owner £25,000 to help pay his teammates' wages. Can you guess which owner? He also talks of a round trip to Nottingham where he needed 12 stitches to a head wound and that was even before he stepped off the coach. Later in the interview, he comes clean on the player no pay, no play vote that could have killed off the Sheffield Steelers' 2000-2001 Grand Slam winning season. He also gives his opinion on former Super League Chief Executive Ian Taylor. Hint, Shane wasn't too impressed. There's a lot to get through in this episode. Stick around, the Shane McCosh interview is coming right up. However, before that, could you help support the podcast and join our exclusive list of Patreon patrons that help keep the show alive? Take a look at our Patreon page at www.oldtimehockeyuk.com dot com forward slash patreon that's www.oldtimehockeyuk.com forward slash patreon that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n you'll also find some terrific reward gifts on offer in return for your support of the show okay it's time let's buckle up press the whoosh button and let's go to the shane mccosh interview Hi Shane, thanks for coming on the Old Time Hockey UK podcast. Hey Ken, I appreciate it. Happy to have you on the show. Okay, let's dive straight in. You're originally from Oshawa in Canada. What are your earliest memories of playing hockey? You know what, I had a very uh, family-oriented upbringing where both my brother and my dad played hockey, even uh, at a a very uh, young age for me, because I think I started playing around two or three years old. Oh, yeah. My dad was a very good hockey player. Uh, My brother ended up being a very good hockey player down the road. And so um, we always did it as a family. Um, I had two sisters that played ringette. It just seemed like a natural fit. And I guess I'd refer to us as the typical, you know, Canadian family where, you know, in the wintertime, you go out on the rinks outside and, you know, you played in the the rinks and indoors when you could, when you could get, when you were old enough. And that's how we uh, did, we had a rink in our backyard. Um, I don't know how my dad did it, mind you, because he worked hydro, which was basically a job that uh, was outside in the winters every day and yet still came home. And he always made sure that, uh, you know, the rink was watered and frozen and great for us as kids to play on. And uh, 
like I said, I don't know how he did it all that time because he had to be pretty cold from <laughs> working all day long. So was that sort of like getting a hose pipe and watering the backyard, for example, letting it freeze over to be a rink? That's right. Yep, that's exactly what it is. So, um, yeah, so we used to go skating all the time at, at night, and that's what we did. And, you know, on the weekends, we did it all day. And uh, when we weren't playing and we had friends over and, you know, it's uh, it's just that's how I grew up. Sure. Yeah. You mentioned your brother. Was it Sean that played in the NHL for the LA Kings and New York Rangers? I've got down here. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, <clears throat> Sean was a really good hockey player and, uh, someone I yeah. looked up to growing up. And obviously he took me under my wing as I started in junior hockey and, and pro. And you know what? He, it's one of those things where I think in his case, uh, it was a timing issue, just not in the right oh, place yeah. at the right time. I know that happens to a lot of guys. So I'm not saying it's just him. Um, but he was, uh, excellent hockey player and you know in that era when you know you had to be pretty tough too he he kind of had all those attributes that you know made him successful in his own right because he did get to play uh you know over 10 years pro which to me is is a great accomplishment for anyone so i think he he's happy with what he was able to accomplish and you know he moved on just like the rest of us did sure yeah okay you've played in the ahl echl del and of course the uk super league but can you remember your very first pro game? Oh, yes. So my first pro game was uh, in the American League, and it was with the, the Springfield Falcons. And so I was pretty excited, uh, you know, as a 19-year-old kid. And, you know, this was – it was a weird year because that was the 94 lockout. Oh, yeah. So we had a lot more NHL players down yeah. with us than would have been because the guys that were kind of on the edge – or on the border of sticking with the big team and playing the American League came down. And so that year, it was the Hartford Whalers, who, uh, who I, I was part of, yeah. and the Winnipeg Jets actually split the American League team. So it was quite a fight to, you know, you wanted to make sure you, you got your ice time and you had to you had to work for it. And so the first game was pretty exciting because, you know, it was a little bit uh, overwhelming where you go from junior hockey and you're one of the older players and you go into, you know, a professional league where now you're playing with all men. Yep, sure. I can imagine. You know, we were prepared for it, but I go, it, it's, you had to adjust really quick to the speed and, and, you know, all these guys were fighting for their careers every game. And so um, you had to be ready to go. And so it, it was a, it was an eye opener and it, it taught me a lot in the sense that you realize that you're out there by yourself. Yeah. You know, as much as you're on a team, the reality is you're not junior anymore. You're not going to be kind of coddled or, or, you know, taken care of. It's either you get it done or they'll find someone else that will. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so moving on a little. In 1996, you crossed the Atlantic to sign for the Bracknell Bees. So what's the story there? How did your UK adventure begin? You know, that was really interesting because um, I, I kind of had a weird year the year before where I was bouncing back between um, the East Coast Hockey League and the American League with uh, Pro the Providence Bruins. And you kind of start to, you always kind of question yourself when you can't get settled in one place. And I debated whether I should go to school because I was, uh, you know, I was very, I knew what I wanted to do in life. And, and I knew hockey was just a, you know, a great sure. passion that I got to play and was fortunate to play. The reality was, is that at some point I knew I'd be working and maybe it was time to look at that option as well. And I got a phone call from Jim Fiertruck out of the blue and he kind of talked about the, the opportunity. And you know what? It was more of a, you know, an opportunity to keep playing pro, you know, travel uh -huh. uh, overseas and, and see a bit of the world. And, and I was kind of intrigued by the British uh, ice hockey league that they were ramping up where, you know, a lot more imports were coming in. Sure. And so I, I, I said, yeah, you know what, let's give it a shot. You know, looking back, sometimes I question maybe 
you know, I left a little bit early because I was, you know, relatively young and maybe try, you know, gave it a couple more years before I did it, but no regrets. It was a great start to my European adventure. And, and, you know, I was, I, I was fortunate to play nine yeah. years over in Europe, you know, between England, Austria and, and Germany and, and Italy. And I go, so how can I complain about that? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, I'm always thankful for Jim for, for giving me a call and, and giving me that opportunity. And, but I will say when I got over there, that it was a different world than what we were used to. Well, I was just actually coming to that because, I mean, you just alluded to, you were just 22 years old when you came over to the UK. I was going to ask you what your first impressions of the UK, if you can remember that. You know what? It, it, you know, being from Canada, it's, it's yeah. similar in a lot of ways. But again, yeah, it's different in other ways. And you know what? I think the biggest thing, the, the biggest adjustment is kind of the living condition or living yeah. uh, conditions. Maybe that's the word I'll use. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, we have three bedroom houses with three floors. And when you come over to the UK, it's it's much smaller. You know what I mean? It's almost like they condense their their living arrangements in a lot of uh, areas to ha- still have the sprawling uh, estates and, and beautiful landscapes that they that you guys do have. But I go, you know, when you get into the cities like apartments and stuff like that, they're, they're a lot smaller than what we were probably used to. The other thing, too, is obviously that, you know, the fridges are like, you know, half fridges, which we were, we were you, you know, you're not uh-huh. used to coming from Canada. And what you learned was you had to go grocery shopping more often and get fresher food more often, which wasn't a bad thing. It was just very different than what we were accustomed to. So that was kind of interesting because you're just like, oh, okay. Like in, you know, the washing machines in the kitchen, <laughs> you're like, okay. And, you know, you don't have dryers, you hang things up. So it's just those little things that, yeah. you, you know, not big things, but you had to kind of adjust to that you weren't used to. And, and of course, driving was uh, an adventure <laughs> for the first week as you tried to, you tried to avoid the <laughs> curbs, but, uh, you know, once you got used to it, it, uh, you know, and the roundabouts, of course, because you, you know, you, you kind of had to make sure you were, you know, not being afraid to actually get through the roundabouts and stuff and, and understand how that works. Yeah, of course, because you don't have roundabouts in Canada, do you? No, no, it's stop signs and stop lights. So, you know, I never thought about that. I mean, I, I've driven in Canada and the States and uh, it's just it suddenly occurred to me. Yeah, no roundabouts. No, especially in big cities like even London. I remember going into Gatwick and that in, yep. in some other areas in London, like there's people moving. So you gotta, you gotta be confident. Just <laughs> like, just get out there, you know, get to where you have to go. It's, it's the people yeah. that hesitate, I think, uh, have a little bit more trouble. It's just a little bit of a learning curve that you have when you, you first get there because you're like, oh, okay, this is how it works. All right. And so that's what you got to do. Yeah. You know, by the end of it, I, I, I love the roundabouts because I, I find it keeps the flow of traffic moving better uh, if people are, you know, yeah, know sure. how to drive in them. Moving on. And it was the Super League's inaugural season with un- unlimited imports. Were there many plays you recognized from back home? Uh, there were. And, and most were on um, other teams. Like I go, I knew some of the guys. I actually knew about one yeah. or two guys on our team not a lot but i go you know in sheffield i knew you knew uh-huh. i knew who rob wilson was and kenny Priestley and those type of guys so there were a handful of guys that uh guys in manchester that i you know either played against or i'd seen play that were a little bit older than i was there was also a lot of european guys that had been right, over there a yeah. lot longer that you know you, you were getting more familiar with because uh like i didn't know who ron shudra was i didn't know who nikki chin yeah. was you know those type of guys because They'd been over here and, and Tony Hand and those, you know what I mean? But you, you got yeah. to know them really quick. And I think over the, the years that we were in the Super League, um, you know, I think the quality of play just got better and better because people realized that they had to bring in higher end talent because each team was doing it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was my next question about what, it, what did you initially think of the standard 
of the hockey in the UK? I mean, I know it got better and better, but when you first actually got there? It was good. It was just a transition that was going yeah. on with a lot of teams because, um, like, even in Bracknell, for example, there was a lot of guys that had played there for years and, and were the main guys, like a yeah. Chris Brandt, Rob Stewart, a Matt Cote, Dave Whistle. They'd been there for years, and, and all of a sudden, the league kind of took a step up. Yeah. And they, you know, the, the coaching and, and what they were used to, you know, like Matt Cote and Rob Stewart, before I got there, you know, the year before, they would kill all two minutes at a penalty. They would, you know, two minutes on a power play because they were the top quality players on that team at the time. And, and there wasn't as many imports to kind of compliment them. And so I think it was an adjustment for them now where you're kind of sitting there going, okay, so you don't need to do this anymore. Sure. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because the guys coming at you are a lot better now too. And you can't just, you know, I mean, you had to kind of, you know, pick your spots and, and realize that, yeah, we need help here because, you know, the quality of play is picking up and, and the credit to them, they, they were still very, you know, good players in the league at the time. And so, um, but I go, I think that's kind of where you saw this transition from the year before where, you know, five guys might play 30 minutes a game to where, you know, you got other teams coming in and they've got three lines rolling through and you're like, yeah, you can't, yeah, I don't know how you're going to, you know, think you're going to play this much because these guys are pretty good. I was just thinking that actually, because certainly, yeah, you go five years back, the very early 90s, they used to have only three imports per team. And, you know, some of those imports would spend up to 50 minutes on the ice. I mean, could you imagine spending 50 minutes on the ice? Oh, no, I, I could never do it. And, and, you know, you look at a guy like Chris Brandt, you know what I mean? Like he, he's yeah. scoring a hundred goals, you know what I mean? Like, so, so it's a transition where, you know, you have guys come in like Dale Junkin and, and Wade Butches that came into Bracknell. And I think Dale in the yeah. second year that I was there won the scoring title. So you know, not that Chris still wasn't a very good player. He was, it's just, it's that step back they got to take because again, more, more and more quality yeah. players were coming in. And, you know, it's uh, one of those opportunities that it became more of, let's see what we can do because, you know, Bracknell was one of the smaller teams versus, you know, the Manchester's Absolutely. and the Sheffields of the world. And, and you know, it was always a test or a barometer to see where we stood with teams like that and where we had to get better. And that's the challenge that I always enjoyed because going into Sheffield was always tough and going into Manchester was tough because they had top teams before the Super League started and just adding a few pieces just made them that much better when it first started and that's why they were sitting sure. on the top at the time but the league definitely over the you know the following five years like they there was a lot more parity and there's a lot more quality on all teams that made it a lot tougher to play yeah absolutely okay so you had three seasons in Bracknell what are your outstanding memories of your time at the club Bracknell was just interesting. And even in the Super League in general, I can honestly say this. I go, for the first five years, I probably saw something that I've never seen before in hockey. From a goalie taking a two-hand at a guy. Um, you know what I mean? Like just just incidents where you're just kind of going, oh my God, I, I've played hockey for a long time. I've never seen that before. But I go, I, I think just the the whole atmosphere of what was trying to be built in Bracknell where we had an owner that probably really wasn't that yeah. interested in hockey. You had an arena that was very unique where you know, it, it's, if you sat in the top, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't see right down on the, the goal line because yeah. of the way it was set up. And it was just more the, the atmosphere of them trying to put together this professional team. And at the same time, not really knowing what to do and not really caring what gets done because it was just part of a business. And, and that's more what it was. And 
Like we had the worst dressing rooms for the longest time for the first couple of years. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, they were just terrible. You obviously never went to Durham then. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> um, you know, like the, the visiting team got dressed out where the public skating happened. And oh, we yeah. were in this small little room. And then eventually they ended up putting an addition on, which was much better. But uh, yeah, it was just kind of the more the atmosphere and everything that went on and the guys that kind of came in and you know what I go, I think besides the one year that we did pretty well in, in getting to the Benson Hedge, uh, I think it was the Benson Hedges uh, cup final, things like that. I go for the most part, I go, I think it was just the guys and off the ice that uh, I remember most because again, all of us being away from home, we were pretty young, like a lot of young guys were on the team and sure. you know, we used to golf every Monday together. There's about eight of us that always did. And so, and just the experience of, you know, going out, hanging out and, and just traveling. You know what I mean? We were close to London. We used to go to London all the time. And and so those experiences were probably the biggest thing I remember about Bracknell because the hockey was just kind of unique and, you know, we weren't that good, good enough to kind of compete in all the trophy events. And so it was just kind of, you know what, making playoffs like the final four, the one year in Manchester was probably a highlight hockey wise. You know, we made a good run of it, you know, just came up a little bit short in the, in the semis, but it, go, it was still a lot of fun. Well, of course, the season after you left, the Bracknell Bees won the Super League Championship. Did you ever think about that and have any regrets that uh, maybe you could have had a championship medal at that time? No, because you know what? It, it, it was just uh, as much as I enjoyed my time in Bracknell and, and you know, it, it's, it was still kind of, you know, I wanted to play for, for a while and I thought Sheffield gave me a better yeah. opportunity to do that. They were on a bigger scale. They were, you know, they were well known compared to Bracknell. Um, because eventually, you know, I just wanted to keep playing and I thought Sheffield would be a great place to, you know, continue my career. And you know what? I was happy for the guys. I knew a lot of guys on the team, obviously. Sure. Yeah. I knew Dave whistled the coach there. So I, I was happy for them. But in the end, I go, I still think it was the right move because playing with different players and having different experiences was kind of the key to the, the growth of hockey in my hockey career anyways. And, you know, you, you need to go into situations that you're kind of a little bit uncomfortable with or, or uncertain about because it's new and adjust to those. And, and, and I think that's what Sheffield brought because, you know, you had Donnie McKee as a coach, but a lot of those guys are well-established in Sheffield as well, you know, with yeah, the long staff yeah. and the Andre Malos and the Rob Wilsons. And, you know, you try and integrate yourself in there to, to be a part of it. I think for the most part, it was, it was a really good experience in Sheffield the, the first year. You know, we, we had some, you know, unfortunate coaching changes and stuff like that. Memories, insights, and anecdotes of hockey heroes. The Old Time Hockey UK Podcast. Before we actually do come on to your Sheffield timeline, I'm going to go to some general questions. Yeah, no worries. All players have a favorite funny hockey story to tell. What's yours? Oh, I, I the, the funniest one I have, I probably can't tell because it happened <laughs> off the ice. <laughs> hey, sorry, you can tell. Uh, Nobody's listening. Long time ago. <laughs> yeah, I'd have to use my <laughs> alias names and stuff like that, but I go, uh, okay. well, I'll leave that one maybe just for off-the-record uh, conversation. The funniest stories are the silly things. Like, you know, it's not the games. It's not the, the tournaments or like that. It, it's more like practice stories where at the end of every practice, we do like a juice boy. You know what I mean? And And – you line up and you do your penalty shots and, and uh, last guy standing has to oh, buy the rest yeah. of the team a beer or, or whatever it is. And I think those were kind of always the funniest things uh, watching guys because, you know, in Sheffield, the guys like the Ed Courtney's and uh, Teeter Wins of the world, they never were in around at the end, you know, so 
you get the guys like me, Andre Malo, and uh, Kale Short at the end, and it's, it just kind of makes you laugh because you're just you're trying to beat you know these goalies, and they're just making you look really bad. There's so many great stories about hockey, but I go most of them always happen off the ice. Like uh, Eddie Courtney, he was you know we'd be stretching for a game, and you're like Eddie, you know you're gonna stretch, and he goes. Did you ever see a thoroughbred stretch? <laughs> and you just start laughing. And, you know, Eddie was always great every time he went out there. That kind of stuff just kind of makes you laugh because, you know, it, it's just the the quality of the people you play with and, um, you know, obviously their personalities. And probably the it's the saddest and funniest story. And I know you'll probably want to get to it is, is the vote in uh, Belfast. Yeah, well, we're going to come to that when we hit the uh, the Steelers segments. Okay, well, uh, I'll let you off on that one then, and let's let's move on to the next question. <laughs> Most players have a nickname. What was yours? So you know what I had? Well, obviously, I had my older brother who, uh, yeah, you know, with our last name Makash. So he was called Kosher, and and I was <laughs> Kashi. So I was kind of like the junior. So, um, but it was either Kosher or Kashi that people called me. Just uh, again, out of reference to the last name, and and which happens a lot, obviously, in hockey. Sure. Okay. Next question then. Did you have any superstitions or rituals before a game? Actually, I didn't. And the only reason I didn't is I was worried that I saw a lot of other players that had their their superstitions and they had to do things certain ways. And and (laughs) the only thing that always worried me is if I didn't do something that mentally I always thought, oh, no, I'm not going to play well. And that that wasn't always going to be true. But I go, I didn't want to have the mental aspect of thinking that. So I did have routines, but a superstition, if I didn't do something, I I didn't worry about it. You know, I didn't tape my stick all the same way. I didn't do that kind of stuff. Um, You know, I got dressed Uh the same way every time, but that was more of a routine than a superstition. But I go, you know, we ate at certain times. I had a nap, you know, for before games and, um, you know, went to the brink, did did kind of all the same stuff. But I go, it was never a superstition that if I didn't do this, I'd be off. I suppose it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? That you think you're going to play bad, you are going to play bad. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then, I, you know, hey, if, if I did something one day and had a good game, I go, I might do yeah. it again the next game. You know what I mean? And and, and kind of follow that routine. And, and then when it's a bad game, you just kind of move on to your next routine. And, and that's kind of, whether that's considered a superstition or not, I go, yeah. that's kind of how I did it. But I go, I know there's a lot of guys, especially goalies, you know, they had to sit in a certain spot. They had to, you know, tape their stick a certain way. And they just had their, <laughs> you know, touch the post three times, whatever it is. And and, and yeah. I go, I get it. It's Goalies are a breed apart though, aren't they? The, yeah, it's kind of a, <laughs> yeah, okay, that's <laughs> That's next level, but I go, that's how they kind of buy in. And, and there was players like that too. I just wasn't one of those guys. Yeah, I just didn't want to give myself another reason not to play well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, who was the best player you ever played with or played against? Best player I actually played with, which is kind of strange, is a, a kid that I played in Austria with. and uh-huh. His name was Joseph Dano. He was a Czech kid. Um, he used to, in the Olympics, I think back in... The nineties he played with Peter Stas no Peter Bondra and and one of the Stasny uh-huh. brothers on his line. And he was fantastic. He could do it all. He was just a really great hockey player. And and we always had an issue with it because we couldn't speak to one another because he didn't speak yeah. English and I didn't speak Czech. But I go, you know, on the ice, you know, you just you just went to the places where you need to go and he was so good he would get you the puck. He's probably the best player I, I played with, but there was a lot of really good players, like especially in England, uh, like, you know, the, sure. the Ed Courtney's, you know, Eddie was a great player. He could do so much, you know what I mean? In so many different ways. And, and he was such a valuable player and a quality person. So I always enjoyed playing with him. And, and you know, I could go through a number of them that were very similar. And um, But I go, that's probably the best player I played with. The best player I played against, 
trying to think back now because you know even back home in, in North America there were a lot of you know cool. good players and and I could even go back to junior and say you know the best player I played was actually Brian Berardi yeah. he was my partner for a year and he was he was he was he was a great hockey player and it was a shame what happened to him um, playing against. I'm going to just go back to England and say, you know what? I really enjoyed playing against Tony Hanning, Kenny Priestley. Right. Yeah. You know, them together, they were always hard to play against. And I just always enjoyed playing against guys like that because you know what? They just went out and played the game. There was no shenanigans, no stupid stuff. They just went out and they played really hard and you know, they were, they were really good. And so I, I always enjoyed playing against guys like that. And at the in the end, you know, with the Super League towards the end of the year, they were everywhere. You know, PC Drew in in Nottingham was really good, and a lot of good players. Okay. And next question, then: What was your worst hockey moment? Worst hockey moment was uh, in junior, actually. So my last two years of junior, I was playing in uh, Detroit, and I broke my wrist in Game Six of um, the semifinals of the Ontario Hockey League. Oh, ouch! So we went into the the finals, and this is the first time I'd been in the finals. I couldn't play the first three games because I had, you know, I just broken my wrist and stuff and, sure. and they fit a cast to my hand so I could do it. And fortunately it was my bottom hand. So it made it really hard to kind of pass and shoot. And so by the end of it, we were able to get me playing and, and, you know, it, yeah, it just wasn't sure. the same, you know what I mean? I just wasn't the same player, unfortunately. And, and, uh, the next year we went to the OHL finals and I got hit and I broke my other wrist. Oh, that is unlucky. It was in game five or six or five. And we ended up winning game six yeah. and going to the Memorial cup. And, um, I had to play the Memorial cup with a broken wrist and a cast on my arm. And, uh, oh, that one was more, more disappointing because, uh, at the time I was probably playing the best hockey I'd played yeah. up to that time in my life. And, you know, it just, uh, it was redemption for the year before. And we we're, you know, it looked like we were going to the Memorial Cup. And this was our, you know, your one chance because it's a very hard trophy to win. And, you know, that kind of happens. And, and, you know, you're on a big stage, especially in the hockey world where lots of scouts and things that you're working hard for and you're playing at a handicap, you know, and, sure, yeah. you know, you're playing against really great players because uh, uh, Cam Loops won that year. They beat us in the finals. And, they had Darcy Tucker, Jerome McGinley, you know, Shane Doan. They had a great team. We we needed everything to beat them. And, you know, and, and it just, you know, I think I was hurt and Brian Brard, you know, he had hurt his, uh, got a Charlie horse in the semis. And so we just weren't the same. And so it's just, uh, that, that was probably the worst and most frustrating moment in hockey. Right. Gotcha. I'm going to show my ignorance when you mentioned Charlie horse. What do you actually mean by that? Oh, a Charlie horse is, uh, so if you get hit in the leg, you know what I mean? If so, if you, if you think in football, when guys get kneed in the leg and stuff like that, where they have that massive pain in their leg yep. where they, it's so tight, that's a Charlie horse. So it just kind of, you still can walk and run and do those things, but you're doing it with a, a, a big pain right. in your leg. Gotcha. Effectively. Yep. Okay, so moving on again then, and after three seasons in Bracknell, you signed for the Sheffield Steelers. And what's the story there? How did that happen? Uh, you know what? Uh, at the time, one of my closest friends um, is Kale Short. Oh, yeah. He played the year before, and uh, it just kind of – I knew Donnie McKee from back home, and they were bringing over some – you know, Jason Weaver went from Nottingham, uh-huh. who I'd known, and um, it just kind of worked out that uh, they were speaking to me and Dale Junkin, who was also a close friend from home. We both kind of were talking about it, and we kind of liked the idea of making the move. Uh, you know, Bracknell was a, a nice little town, and the guys were great, which made it better. Going into London and stuff was great, but I go, 
you know, Sheffield was just a bigger town. It was a different part of the country. You know, the facilities were, you know, top notch. Yeah. And, you know, the, the players they had in Sheffield were, were always, you know, they always had really strong teams. So oh, absolutely. Yeah. The irony, I guess, is we probably, you know, thinking to myself is we're going to have a better chance there, you know yep. what I mean, to do more than in Bracknell. And then, yeah, it did turn out that Bracknell <laughs> did win the <laughs> trophy that year. But, you know, it, it, it was a move that we, we decided to make. And you know what? Like I said earlier, I go, it was the right move for me. And, and I go, I'm so glad that I did it because, you know, my experience in my time in Sheffield was great. Yeah, I, I can imagine from the research I've done, obviously, uh, you had a few ups and downs, which we'll get to shortly. Overall, I can imagine that you would certainly class it as a big success by actually going there, if not for the trophies, but just for the experience of, of being in Sheffield. As I mentioned earlier, I was there from the start, although I'm a Panthers fan, yeah, but I was there from the start because I worked in Sheffield at the time and opened a, a hockey shop in Sheffield. So I could see it building and building, you know, and hated every minute of it every time you beat Nottingham, but we won't go down that road. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it was a fantastic facility. And unfortunately, yeah, they did have some fantastic teams. But uh, after you'd been there a few months, the club decided to part companies with Don McKee. I mean, did that come as a shock to you or was the change expected? It came to a little bit of a shock just because, you know, Donnie yeah. was a really good coach. I just think he was overthinking things overseas. You know, I, I think he was a good coach for um, more than North American hockey uh, mm-hmm. yeah. style because there were a lot of things that, you know, you could look into and, and, and systems he wanted to put in. And But in the end, you're kind of going, listen, you're over here now. It's a little bit different. Like, you know what I mean? Like uh, when we played in the uh, – uh, what was the tournament? Uh, it was a tournament that um, involved that. Like we had Omps come in. Oh, a European and, Cup, was it? Yeah, and, and the team from France. And we're playing the team from France, and he's got us playing a way that you're like, we're way better than this team. Why are we playing so defensive and like you know worried about their players? Like just let's just go. And they tied it in the final minute, which eventually knocked us out because we would have moved on to the next round. Right. But it was things like that that you just never understood with Donnie. And and I go and. You know, he was a hard guy to to talk about it and suggest changes because, you know, he was he was a great coach. He, you know, technically was very, very sound and he kind of had his idea of what he wanted to do. And, you know, I wasn't questioning that, but I go, I'm a big believer that sometimes you got to talk to your players a little bit more because they're the guys on the ice that see more. Yeah. And, you know, he just kind of kind of did his own thing and you just, that was it. You just kind of went, okay, well, if you're going to do that, then I don't know what you want us to do here. Uh, It's not working. So it was what it is, and and but I go in the end, uh, you know, it was a shame that any time that has to happen, and yeah, yeah, you know, like uh, Blazer came in, and you know, I thought he did a good job, and you know, Blazer was a totally different kind of coach. He was more of a relaxed coach. He'd been over here for a number of years anyway, so he knew the British scene and how to handle it and get the best out of the caliber of players that he'd got at the time. But when I was doing the research on Don McKee's departure, it came right after. The Bracknell Bees Halloween Night Massacre, where the Steelers lost 10-2 to your former team. Yet just five days later, the team without a new head coach beat the Nottingham Panthers 10-1. I mean, how can a team that loses 10-2 on a Sunday go out and win 10-1 just five days later? I think, you know what it was? I, I remember that game in, yeah. in Bracknell very well. And I, I think I asked to be sacked because I go, for whatever reason, every time I was on the ice, I got scored on. I go, okay, it's just not working. Like, it's just, yeah. I'm just not helping. I, I remember that. I think what it was is, like you said, I go, it's, you know, when you, when you have a, a team overseas, you really the biggest job is you have to recruit well. Yeah. And 
if you recruit well, you have good players that have come from different backgrounds and you just kind of put a system together that everyone can kind of just buy into. You're not trying to teach hockey anymore. And I think that's where Donnie might have had trouble with because he was trying to implement stuff where, you know, you had so many quality players on the team that knew how to play hockey. Right. Mike Blaisdell resigned from the Nottingham Panthers to become the new Steelers head coach. But because of the bitter rivalry between the two teams over the years, did it cause a stir in the locker room or was that just with the fans? I think it was more with the fans. Yeah. Um, For the players, it was more, it always comes down to more how things are going to change playing. You know, um, each coach likes different players. They play, you know, it's common that some players will play more than others under different coaches. And, And I think it was just more of a, Okay, so how does this look? How's how's this new dynamic going to be? And yeah. and that's more what it was with Blazer coming over. Um, it was a little surprising. Obviously, he'd been in Nottingham for quite a long time, and um, you know, just to you know, pick up and leave and come to Sheffield at that time. You know, I'm not sure what the motivation was for him, and and I'm sure it worked out for him. He, you know, he he's going to do things that were in his best interests. You know, as, as we all do. Oh, absolutely. So I I don't know what made that decision but i go you know he came into besides all the stuff that was going on with the ownership he came into a pretty good situation with the players that he had i think we had some success under him regardless certainly he hit the ground running because for the next three games the first two were on the road you beat top of the table teams london and then bracknell a few weeks down the road hit you uh 10-1 so uh, he obviously hit the ground running there yeah and, and you know what it, it's like i was saying about don mckee i go it's as much as i respect donnie mckee and, and him as a coach i go he's a much better coach in a teaching situation and, and i think at that stage or, or that part of the where we were in the league at that time is you had a lot of good players on your team that knew how to play it was just yep. making sure that everyone was on the same page. Sure. You know, and, and I think, you know, in those situations, when you have that many quality players, you just say, okay, so this is how I want you to do it, but you'll adjust to whatever's going on on the ice in that time where Donnie was very X and O and it just yep. didn't make sense because, again, you're talking about a lot of different backgrounds, you know, and Ed Courtney played in the NHL, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. He had other guys that, you know, Dale Craigwell. And, and so they had all these experiences of how to play and now a coach trying to tell him to do a different way sure you know and it, it's like listen i can play in any situation i you know i i'm you know they're that talented just kind of give me an idea of so everyone's kind of got the same idea and then we'll just read and react out there on the ice and, and do what we need to do and then communicate with one another and that's kind of how blazer was more blazer was the other end of the scale where He's like, listen, just go play. You guys are good players. Just go play. He goes, you know, he put something very general in and just, you know, he, he chose the guys he wanted in certain situations. Is there a player you would like to hear on the show? Tell Ken now at oldtimehockeyuk.com or Facebook forward slash oldtimehockeyuk. It certainly worked for the team because they finished as runners-up to Champions Bracknell and also won the Challenge Cup. So what are your best memories from that particular season? Uh, I think the best memories from that was, you know, just the fight that was in the team. Uh, you know what I mean? To overcome some of the adversity we went through with the, the coaching change and getting used to one another. And, um, you know, obviously winning the Challenge Cup uh, at the time was a, a was a good accomplishment for us because it was kind of a new team. There was a lot of new players in there. I was new and Kip Noble and um, Dale Junkin and Jason Weaver and Greg Clancy, all these guys were new to the team. And so it just, it took a little while to kind of gel. 
Um, but in the end, we proved to ourselves that, you know, we were a good hockey team and in, you know, if not one of the best in the league. And so I think that the memories of just this accomplishing more than how it looked at the beginning of the year and getting to know the fans. You know, I went from a small rink in Bracknell and, and, you know, they'd have a thousand fans and, and that was great to, you know, go to Sheffield and they'd have 5,000, 6,000. And you're just like, you know what? It was more, more of a hockey atmosphere and it was a lot more fun to play in for that reason. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Having been a regular in, in Sheffield for the first couple of seasons, I know exactly what you mean. And then coming back for a Nottingham Panthers away game, sitting uh, with the away fans. I mean, that atmosphere in that arena could be pretty special. Not as special as Nottingham, I must add, being a, a, obviously a Panthers fan. I keep emphasising that. But it was certainly special at times in Sheffield too. Oh, yeah. Actually, you know what? When you asked me one of the funniest moments, I actually thought of the best moment because of I was going to Nottingham to play with Bracknell. And, but one of the funniest moments is, is when we used to go and, um, obviously get on the bus to go to games, I would sleep under the chairs and the bus. All right. Yeah. Because, you know, I'd, I'd done it forever in junior and everything. So we, I'd sleep under the, and we had the card table bus. So you always had the, the, the V there. Yeah. But for some reason, the bus we took had the bathroom in the middle of the bus rather than the back. So what I did was I slid under the chairs and had my head in this, you know, where the two chairs are back to back. Right. And I was sleeping. And so we were going to Nottingham and all of a sudden the bus driver slammed on the brakes. <laughs> well, I went sliding along the floor and my head hit <laughs> one of the footrests on the oh, back ouch. of the bus and <laughs> cut me. And oh. this isn't, we're not even at the game yet. <laughs> yeah. So I, I get out of, get out from under the chair. I got cuts, you know, a cut on my forehead and I got Chris Brandt and our, and Brian, who was our trainer at the time, putting in stereo strips, trying to just piece it together. Oh God. They call ahead to let them know that, you know, we're going to need some stitches when I get there. Yeah. So I go in and, and I'm laying on the table in the Nottingham uh, dressing room. And of course, guys are coming in that I knew from Nottingham and just like Jamie Leach and all these guys. Yeah. And they're laughing at me and going, what the hell happened to you? And, <laughs> I'm going, oh, it's unbelievable. And so they're looking at it here and there's probably about three or four people standing over me and they're going to, I think I end up getting about 12 stitches. Oh. And one point I'm just sitting there and I'm just kind of looking like, you know, I'm just laying there because it's happening. And, and yeah. I look to my right and whoever was standing beside me and I think it was a Nottingham, you know, part of their training staff was holding a pair of scissors and it had to be about five centimeters from my eye. Oh, And I'm kind of looking like this going, oh. And he's looking at the wound, so he's not really paying attention. So I had to kind of grab his hand and slowly move it away, <laughs> you know, and, and they stitched me up. And of course it was, it was high, like, you know, towards my hairline. So they can't bandage it. So they took a wrap and wrapped it around my head. So I looked like a, a wounded war veteran <laughs> with this giant wrap around my head. And I have to go to the dressing room, get changed. All the guys on the team are killing themselves laughing, going, you have to go out there for national anthem. I'm like, I am not going out there for national anthem because you have to take your helmet off. So Jim Furchek had a, a superstition of staying in the room during the national anthem and then going out. So I stayed in there with him. So I never had to take my helmet off. But uh, that was probably one of the funnier ones that I, I've seen where you just, you're going to a game and get 15 stitches on the way. But my question is to that lead. Did you ever repeat sleeping on the bus like that again? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Maybe sleep with your helmet on this time. Yeah, I, I just repositioned myself a little bit more careful uh, <laughs> that uh, if, if the bus slammed on the brakes again, I wouldn't be sliding into anything. And yeah. I had this little rollout, like, eggshell type thing to lay on. So I made sure that there was pillows in front of the thing. So I didn't... Uh, 
I did, it, I wasn't going to get hurt again, but uh, <laughs> that was kind of a, something I've never seen in hockey before. That is certainly a first from my point of view as well. So, okay, let's move on and get to the 2000 and 2001 Sheffield Steelers season. And it's often been described as being the best of times and the worst of times. Of course, the best of times because the team won the Grand Slam. So that was the championship, the playoffs, the Benson and the Hedges Cup and the Challenge Cup. But of course, it was the worst of times as the team had been in dispute with team owner Darren Brown almost since the season began. So tell me about that. You know what? I go, there were so many behind the scenes stories there that so many people don't know about. And sure. it, was, it was definitely a, a very trying time because they set us up with the weirdest schedule. So most of our home games were in the second half. Oh, yeah. Which was very, very strange. So I think in a, like a 20-game span, we had three home games. And so it gave Darren, whatever Darren was doing, which obviously was illegal and shady, sure. um, gave him an excuse. Because he was saying, look, we have no revenue coming in. This is why, you know, we're going to have to put off paying you and stuff. And you could see it and you're like, well, I can buy into that, I guess. Like, you know, it makes sense. We have no home games. And, you know, when you have 6,000, 7,000 fans, you're like, yeah, I get it. All this money comes in. And it bought him time at the beginning of the year for him to continue doing whatever he was doing. Yeah. So it was hard for us to kind of argue it. But the team we had put together was obviously a very, very good team. And, Absolutely. you know, we we just kind of kept playing along and, and doing well and and. One of the things a lot of people didn't know at the time was, is I was in an elevator with Darren and Simsy actually, and we were talking about things and we we're talking about this because I was actually the player rep that year. Oh yeah. And he just said, he goes, well, he goes, do you want to lend me 25,000 pounds? Oh. He goes, I'll give you 10% interest. And as soon as the games come, I'll pay back after each game. Oh. At the time I thought, you know what, this is crazy. I was going, but you know what? I go, we have games coming. So I actually lent him 25,000 pounds Ooh, ouch. to pay all the guys. Gosh. And that kind of got everyone caught up. So the players were a little bit happy because you didn't want it to drag too long where you got too far behind. Yeah. And, you know, and, and at the time I thought, you know, we got all these home games coming and like every game I'm, you know, I'll go in there and I was very adamant about going in there and just saying, you got money last night, write me a check. You know what I mean? Yeah. With my money. And I stuck to it pretty good. And, 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 you know, obviously when, stuff really started to hit the fan. I was a little bit nervous because I was like, going, um, okay, wait a minute here. You know, I was dealing with my own thing there, but I go, it's one of those things that you were trying to to help out to get through and, and you could see it on the other side. You just didn't know that Darren was doing exactly, you know, everything yeah. that he was doing. And yeah. fortunately for me, I did get it all back and, and everything worked out in that way. But, but that was a relief. <laughs> it was. And, you know, it, it was a concern at the time because, you know, with, with the exchange and everything, you're, you know, for that's about fifty fifty thousand $50,000 Canadian, you know, right. that probably and, and closer to 60. So you're just kind of going, okay, here, what have I done? And, yeah. and but you know what, I, I knew that, it, you know, I mean, I stayed on top of them pretty good. Like every, you know, even four home games in a row, like I was in there and I was collecting you know, five grand a game, six, yeah. you know what I mean? And sometimes they put me off a little bit, but I'm like, okay, what day am I coming here to get money? You know what I mean? It wasn't, you'll get it to me. And so it was just unfortunate that a lot of stuff had come out while I was doing that. And, you know, one day the players signed a thing that they weren't going to play that game because they weren't getting paid, you know? And, and I'm like going, oh no, but we still ended up playing. And as the player rep, I was able to kind of get more insight into what was going on and, and, you know, more information and, and kind of use that to my advantage to kind of make sure we kept pushing things along. 
and that's what we did. And, and, you know, through it all, I go, it's a credit to all the players that did it, but it caused a great divide in the room. You know, there was a group and I know Simsy touched on it in his, his podcast. There's probably about five or six guys that were very upset and were to the point where they probably would have just bailed. You know, I mean, we called it a year and they weren't going to do it without everyone else, but they were, they were more pushing that this is, we're not going to get our money. This isn't going to work. So to me, it was more, okay, I get the problem. You keep saying the problem. I go, we got to find a solution. That's the key. Yeah. And that's kind of where on the other side. So I had the players that, you know, wanted to play, were quiet. They, you know what I mean? Like didn't know what to do. You know, and then you had these, you know, five pretty, you know, influential guys on the team and <laughs> more militant. Yeah. And just kind of, you know, like, uh, Dennis Vial and, and Paul Beraldo and, and David Longstaff, they were, they were more, they were more built that way that they, you know, I mean, they, they weren't trusting. They just kind of made it worse than what it was, but it was still bad. So they weren't wrong. They weren't wrong in, in any respect. You won't pay for the job that you're doing. But uh, I was doing the research, and I, I know it all came to a head in the playoff game in Belfast, which was two days before the Challenge Cup final in Belfast. I was also surprised to read that there was also a threat of a, a no-pay, no-play strike in January. Was that right? Yeah, yeah. No, and, and that's where we all kind of signed a, a petition to give to the uh, the owner. All right. And that's where, you know, we were just saying, like, look, you, if you want us to play, you got to pay us and, and yeah. kind of catch up here. And that's kind of where, you know, uh, like I said, I go, I kind of helped out to kind of bail it out a bit to keep yeah. this moving. Because, you know, like I said, I go, even if you're ever able to pull up that old schedule, I go, it was the weirdest schedule. All our games were in the second half of the year. And so you just kind of assume things would be better because, again, we didn't know what was going on behind the scenes quite to the degree that it was. Sure. But I go, you know, pay as you go is is something that only works for so long, especially when someone's not really willing to pay you. Well, absolutely. And so that's why it finally became to a head in when we were in Belfast for the, the cup final there. You know, you kind of had to use your leverage for what you had. Yeah. And at that time, because I was going to so many meetings, which drive me crazy because, <laughs> you know, as a player, rep, we met with the new guys that kind of came in and, and really the guys. And I wish I remember their names because they were quality guys. They, they ended up bailing us all out and yeah. making sure everyone got paid. You know, what, meetings with them, they were kind of telling us what's going on, how they're coming on the scenes. Like, but really, they didn't have to. You know, what I mean, everything they did to. Uh, they didn't have to do. And, and I'm not sure how much they, they ended up out of pocket money for sure. How much I'm not sure, because again, we still had a lot of game revenues that if they were able to take those assets to kind of pay off things, but you know, the team had, you know, tax issues or so many issues in the end with, with the yeah. team had to deal with, it came to the vote in Belfast. And that was, that was a completely different animal because we were all the way over there and, you know, the guys are just like, I, you know what, this is, we're not getting paid. This is a joke. You know, we're getting screwed. We shouldn't even play, blah, blah. And, and you know, how do you resolve that? And so we, we did our vote. And that was, a, that was interesting. I'm waiting for you to elucidate because, I mean, <laughs> Simsy went into it. Obviously, you've listened to the Simsy uh, podcast. Yeah. And um, he was pretty sure that it would be a, a no play. But it turned out, obviously, that, uh, yes, uh, it, it was play. He was thinking that maybe you uh, might have fiddled it, uh, for want of a better word. To be honest, it, um, <laughs> I don't think I've ever told anyone this story. Uh-huh. Um, well, as I said before, you can tell me because nobody else is listening. Yeah, no, and, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's actually kind of a, it's a funny story to me, but I go, I knew what was going on in the sense that I go, we got to try and get money out of these guys and, and keep going and try and get as much as we can. That, that was my philosophy at the time. 
Um, the other guys that we were talking about, uh, the, the, the group, they were like, either they pay us up or we're done. You know what I mean? And so a lot of guys were kind of more on my way of thinking of, you know, they didn't want the season to end. They had nowhere to go. Yeah. Because it was obviously late in the year and all the other teams, you know, all teams all around the world have already got their rosters. And, you know, they wanted to get their money, you know. And, and so we go to this vote and we're sitting there and we, we look at everyone around and we say, okay, everyone take a piece of paper, do their vote. And Blazer and uh, Rick Brebant weren't going to do a vote because they were coaches. And I said, well, you guys are part of the team. you got to do a vote. You're entitled to a vote. And I think we even gave Simsy one. You know, I mean, because oh, right. <laughs> I, I don't remember 100% about Simsy. I know we did with uh, Rick and, and Blazer. But I go, we're all part of this. We're all in this together. So everyone gets a vote. So we did it. And, you know, David Longstaff, who, who's a great man and, and one of the guys I most enjoyed playing hockey with. And we were good friends. And, and you know, he was kind of hanging around uh, Dennis Fial and, and Paul Veraldo a little bit more and, and was kind of on that in part of that group to a degree. Not, not as maybe as, as indignant about the fact that he'd say it's all or nothing. He was, but he was leaning to not play and, and, uh, he was kind of watching what I was doing because I was trying, I had to play both sides because again, as player rep, but also in my head, I go, I wanted to get my money. Sure. And so he was watching me write what I put. So I had to make it look like I was writing not to play, right? but I wrote play. And so, so then he was sitting beside me and as this damn player rep, I had to pull out all the votes and say, okay, play, not play. And we were calculating it. And after a while, after going through it, I'm like, oh my God, there's a lot more not plays. Like, this is not going the way we want it to go. So I pulled one out that said not play. And, Dave, and David was watching me fairly close. And I, just yeah. looked, I went, oh, play, put it away. And it, it was a not play. <laughs> and then the rest, I said exactly what everyone else wanted. In the end, it was a tie. Right. So if I hadn't changed that one vote, it was not play and the season was done. Wow. And so now we had to sort out, what do you do with a tie? So we had to go back upstairs and, you know, like, I can't even imagine what Sims and Blazer and Rick were thinking because they're going, oh my God, a tie. Now what? What are we going to do? And so <laughs> we went up to the room, we got talking and, and we both, and that's when it kind of came out going, guys, look at, we, let's go back to these guys say, look, we'll play, but we need this much money. We need a pay period caught up when we get back or it's yeah. done. You know what I mean? Like, it's not a, it's not an all, you know what I mean? Let's not just make that decision. Let's play and then say, look at, if we don't get paid when we get back, then the season's done. Right. Because one more game wasn't going to kill anyone. And I go, it gave us the leverage to say, if you don't do it, then that's it. We're packing it in. And the guys came through and, and made a payment. In. And we kind of had to do that the rest of the year just to kind of make sure we got paid. And that's why we actually finished out the year. And the credit to the guys is really how we went into the, the cup final after all that stuff going on in the thing to win it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. After that first Belfast Giants game, two days later, you played the Scottish Eagles in the Challenge Cup and won the game 4-2 for another cog in the Grand Slam year. But what was the mood like in the camp for that particular Challenge Cup final game? Can you remember that? You know what? It was, uh, again, it was one of those things where we were trying to get as much out of the, the business, uh, you know, from the guys we can to give us a reason to play. Yeah. So we were utilizing that. You know, at the, in the end, the guys were all professionals on the team. You know what I mean? So no one was going to go out and not play hard or, or, or work hard or quit on someone else. Yeah. Uh, it just wasn't in them. Like Dennis Vial, as much as, uh, you know what I mean, he was very upset about everything and, and it was affecting him, you know, off the ice with the fact that he was angry and won, you know, 
thinking we should we should just stop the season. Yeah. When he stepped on the ice, he was a professional and he played. And the same with Paul Beraldo and the same with all the guys that were kind of, you know, leaning in that group. And the rest of us, you know, we we followed them. You know, they were the important guys to the team and we followed them and and we could just go out there and play hard because in the end we separated the game from what was going on off the ice and and we, you know, we were all winners, we were all professionals and we wanted to win. That's why you played hockey, to win. And then when it was over, you know, we wanted to make sure we were being taken care of on the other end. And, and so we went back to focusing on that. And so I, that just shows the quality of the team and, and the guys on the team. So that's kind of where that went. You know, it's a, a, an interesting story. And, and I don't know if David Longstaff remembers this. So at the end of the year, they do the, I think, Scon- I don't know if Sconda was still sponsoring us at that time, but they do the player of the year. And, yeah. and David Longstaff had a great year. So whoever won a player of the month got invited to this year-end banquet at the finals weekend. and so. I was fortunate to win a month. David, I think, won one or two. He had a great year. And then there was a, a number of guys from other teams. And I think Peter Angelo and a few other guys were there. And someone was asking me about the thing. And, and David was standing beside me. And, and they said, uh, you know, what about these guys coming in? Should they get the, the team? And I said, absolutely. And I said, these guys came in, didn't have to, put in money of their own, made us all whole. And, you know, there's no guarantee that they're going to. Whoever the commissioner of the league at the time was, and I wish I remembered his name because I didn't like him very much. Taylor. Was it Taylor? Yes. He was just the worst person to run the league, period, because <laughs> I, I don't even know. I can't even say one good word about him, to be honest. Yeah. You know, I said, I go, he should give it to them because of what they did. You know what I mean? And, and came in and he saved this because I go, think of the league if Sheffield folded halfway through the year. God, yeah. Think of the, the – the, and I go – they should give it to him. And they never did. And when we walked away from that conversation, David Longstaff lobby came up and said, you know what? He goes, I never even looked at it that way because they were so focused, obviously on what, what was going on in the negative side of it, which was understandable. The reality was, is we were getting paid just not the way we wanted, but we were still getting paid. And the guys that came in, they didn't trust. They didn't, you know, they didn't want to deal with it. And you're like, but these are the guys that got us the money. I don't care who came in as long as someone tried to make all the players whole for what was agreed upon. You know what I mean? That's all I focused on the whole time. And that's the solution. I go where, you know, I mean, it, it happens in a lot of different situations where the problem that was going on with, you know, unfortunately for those guys at the time is they were focused on the problem and it was a big problem. So sure. I, I don't blame them for that either. But The guy's name was Ian Taylor. Yeah. So I'll tell you one quick story about him. And then, uh, and then after that, I lost a lot of respect for him is we were in Belfast again for something. And maybe it was before we even did the vote. Maybe it was that time. I don't remember. And we walked in after a practice or maybe it was a morning skate. And Rick Freeband asked me, he goes, Taylor wants to talk to someone about what's going on. And he goes, you're the player rep. You have to go talk to him. And I'm like, <laughs> right. So I went over and, and we sat down and Rick was there and we're talking and, and he's just like, yeah, like, uh, here you guys may not play. You guys can't do that. But I go, well, you guys aren't doing anything. The league's not doing anything. He goes, he goes, what do you mean? I go, well, we're in here hearing the stories of what's going on with one of the owners you guys approved. We're not getting paid and we haven't heard anything from the league. Nothing. And he's like, oh, we're doing stuff behind the scenes. I go, behind the scenes doesn't help us. You know what I mean? You guys have basically done nothing to help us. You're not in our corner. And I go, and, and we don't understand why. And I go, so we don't care, you know what I mean, for the most part, what your issue is or what your concerns are because you guys don't care about ours. And 
he threatened to give us all a 10 minute misconduct to start a game. I go, so you're going to have 20 guys in a penalty box with a 10 minute misconduct. I go, you know, you just, just the oddest thing. And I go, you really don't know what's going on here. Do you like, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that the league's got to protect themselves, but this isn't about the players doing something to the league. It's about an owner. Absolutely. So they got to step in and, and kind of, you know, whether it's getting the owner out or doing whatever they need to do to help the players and keep the team going and, and the league itself, uh, you know, keeping its credibility and sure. Yeah. Standing. And I, I just always found that it was kind of a, you know, I know he's paid pretty well to do it. And I just think that he wasn't the right person for it because you really could agree that game. Like, you know, for a while there, there was some fantastic hockey over there and, you know, you really could agree the game much better than he did. Um, but I go, you know, it's, it's easy for me to say from on this side as well, because again, I didn't deal with the day-to-day that he did either. So I'll give him a break on it that way. Yeah, but the main point is what you're saying is that the league knew about it for months and months and never did anything until the threatened player strike in Belfast. Yeah. 8th of March it was. Uh, they didn't do anything until that happened. And that's totally wrong. Yeah. And then it was our fault. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we can do something and you're like, we've been dealing this for three months. Not one person from the league ever came talk to us that's crazy so you know i mean it just uh like i said i go that's why i don't have a you know a lot of good things to say about uh, ian taylor in that regard um because sure. i was i was disappointed you know it, we battled it out ourselves a long time and and the the union rep at the time who was a lawyer and i wish i remembered her name as well because it's going back a few years she was fantastic joe collins Yes, she was amazing. She was so helpful. And, you know, you always kind of, why do you need a union overseas? And, you know, what I mean, like you kind of always wanted yeah. that, but, but it wasn't that expensive. And you're just like, well, I might as well. And you know what? It, it, thank God we did because she was, you know, what I mean, like, uh, she was great. You know what I mean? She, there's someone that's going to bat for you. And Ian, Ian Taylor didn't go, go to bat for any of us. And, uh, sure. That's it for me. Just moving on to a side point, you you mentioned the two guys that came in to uh, to look after the team because basically, I think about a week later, uh, Steelers owner Darren Brown lost the franchise. He had to relinquish it, and the two guys that that came in, who you were saying you couldn't remember the names, why you were saying that, I was just looking it up actually. The two guys that you mentioned were two Yorkshire-based businessmen. Martin Jenkinson and Andy Cook. So they were basically the saviors of the Steelers season that year. They were. And the, and the funny thing is we had a player meeting where Dennis and, and uh, Mike O'Neill and, and Paul and Adam brought in these guys. And they kind of tried to talk us into the thing that um, these two guys were buddies with Darren. Yeah. And that's, you know what I mean? So you couldn't trust them and all this stuff. And I'm like, I get it. I go, I'm not questioning that because I go, they're just two guys. You know what I mean? I don't know who they are. I go, but I go, if they're willing to put up money, I don't care. You know what I mean? Cause <laughs> yeah, I go, like, I go, this is what we need to look at guys. Like if these guys are stepping up, I go, I don't care if they're Darren's best friends. You know what I mean? I go, cause again, the end result is we just want to get what was owed to us. If they're stepping up, then that's the name of the game, isn't it? That's, that's helping everybody. Yeah. And so they, they, you know, they, they got a lot of resistance for some of the guys. I had, you know, numerous meetings with them and, because, you know, again, it's this damn player rep. <laughs> Never again, eh? <laughs> yeah, I had to find out who they were and, and what they, you know, I mean, and, re- and report back to the guys. Yeah, and, sure. And so I had a number of, you know, meetings with them and stuff like that. And, you know, you kind of had to be skeptical for sure. Yeah. 
But at some point, you got to kind of say, well, okay, if you guys do what you say you can do, great. And that's why, you know, at the end, when I was being asked about it, I go, I give these guys full credit. In the end, I, I don't know the exact amount they were out of pocket, but I go, whatever they did to get us, you know, made everyone whole, I go, is a credit to them. Yeah. And I and I think, the, you know, the guys didn't appreciate it as much as they should have. And I, I have most respect in the world for Dave Long stuff. And, you know, when he said, he goes, I never thought of that way. I go, I had to deal with him. You weren't dealing with him like this. And I go, so... I go, I respect them for that. And the guys put the money where the mouth is, which is something that obviously Darren Brown didn't do. Yeah, and then what you did is you watched uh, Ian Taylor take the franchise away from them. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where I sit there and go, how can I respect someone that basically came in and did their job, his job, yeah. by bailing out Sheffield and helping the league? And they just went, no, no, we're not going to, you know, we, we want another initiation or whatever uh, um, fee for a new franchise and, so I, that's, again, another kind of uh, X against the Ian Taylor where I go, yeah, can't, I can't respect you for that reason. Want more old-time hockey? Connect with Ken now on Twitter at Old Time Hockey UK or on Facebook forward slash Old Time Hockey UK and visit oldtimehockeyuk.com. Okay, let's move on. And I want to go back to another road trip a month before the Belfast game, and this time to a game against bitter rivals, the Nottingham Panthers, and the infamous Battle of Lower Parliament Street. I'm sure you, you thought I was going to come to that anyway. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> what do you remember about that game, and in particular, the bench clearance? I mean, where were you when it all kicked off? You know what? It, obviously, there's a lot of bad blood. Um, yeah. Barry Nykar had... Uh, I think he'd taken a cheap shot at uh, Scott Allison and Paul Beraldo. And so they both were, were looking for it. They wanted to go after him and, and, and to have a word. Yeah. And, and obviously, uh, you know, Dennis, uh, you know, back up anyone on his team. And so you kind of knew, not that it was coming, but you knew that at some point of the game where it's going to boil over and, you know, maybe there's a couple of fights or something like that. You know what yeah. I mean? Like just kind of what was going on that whole year anyways, because the league was definitely got much tougher that year. Uh-huh. And there's a lot of guys in the league that could really fight. So, but sure enough, you know, uh, it all started. And of course, you know, Scott looked at an opportunity to pay some revenge and, sure. and, and got very pretty good, which, you know, got the Nottingham bench all upset. And then, Barry ended up squaring off with Dennis and they were fighting and, and, you know, I, I think Scott climbed over the glass <laughs> at Nottingham, which was quite high. Apparently so, according to Simsy, yeah. And once that kind of started happening, then, you know, Blazer wasn't afraid to send the bench and, and next thing you know, we're, we're all on the ice and fighting and I was right at the door. So you had to jump on, but I go, you kind of had to leave the guys that really wanted to, you know, go after each other, go after each other. And you're, you're trying to, you know, make sure no, nothing's uneven the rest of the time. So I think I ended up tied up with Jim Peck. Oh yeah. And I know Jimmy from the Oshawa days. And so, and him and my brother are good buddies. And, and, but I go, we were both old enough and and smart enough to realize that if there was kind of like something that even because the refs couldn't control it, where a fight was over and, you know, it just needed breaking up, we'd go over and kind of, you know, break that stuff up because it could be very dangerous. You know what I mean? And, And, you know, there was no beef where, you know, I I wanted to, you know, fight someone in Nottingham at the time and or like that. So you're just kind of, you know, like I would say the majority of the guys were just on the ice kind of going, okay, grab someone and, and keep them out of the fray. And, sure. you know, I mean, just let, let the big guns do what they need to do. Yeah. And, and so 
it was quite an experience. It, it, it really was because I go, you're just watching this, and you know, someone could have went around and suckered another guy. Like it's yeah. just a, it, it's a vulnerable situation for a lot of guys. And but you know what, I go in the end. Uh, I don't want to say it's part of hockey, but it's it's not like it's never been seen in hockey. And it was very interesting to be part of it. You know, it, in the end, I'm just glad no one got hurt. Sure, yeah. And you know, I know the next time my rink was sold out, that not even came to the rink. <laughs> It was always good for bringing the uh, the fans in, that is for sure. Oh, yeah, and uh, then we almost had one in Manchester, which a lot of people don't know actually as well is... Oh, yeah. There was a five-on-five brawl that we had on Manchester, and, and we had some really tough guys on the ice and, and that could handle themselves. So yeah. I think Scott Metcalf was out there, Vial was out there, Beraldo, a few other guys, and they had some tough guys like Tremblay out there and stuff. And at one point, Blazer goes, okay, clear the bench. And I, I remember standing at the door, and I'm like, hold on. <laughs> like, I go... <laughs> We're not at a disadvantage out here. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think we're going to do okay. I go, we clear the bench. You know what I mean? Like, you know, Manchester had a number of guys too, like Dougie Duell and, and Trumbly out there that, you know, were tough guys. And cool. you're like, should we be really, you know what I mean? And, and the guys kind of held off because, you know what I mean? Like as much as it's entertaining for the fans, I go, I know a lot of guys on their team. Uh, guys know it's same as other guys. And you're just like, are we going to run around here and just start punching each other again? So. We just kind of let the 10 guys on the ice handle it. And then that was it. And it didn't escalate from there. But I'm like, oh, I don't know if we can have another bench clean brawl. Like it was like a week or two later. And I'm like, oh, I don't know if we want to go down this road. Ian Taylor would certainly have not liked that, would he? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not at all. Not at all. So could have been very, very ugly. Okay. Well, going back to the Nottingham one, I mean, two days later, the team went to London to play the London Knights, beat the London Knights 6-1 to clinch the league championship. I mean, do you remember that game? I do, because Chris McSorley was quite the uh, character. And you know what? He was just an interesting guy, and I know that just ate away at him. And that year, he also brought in, like, you know, a number of guys that were probably a little bit better known for fighting than playing hockey, even though they still could play hockey, but they were pretty tough guys. And and he just tried to intimidate everyone. Right. And there was nothing worse that drove him crazy than, our team, who we could handle ourselves too, but we, we were more of a skilled team. And we just go in there and he was almost like a Donnie McKee where he put something in place and just wanted it done. Yeah. And we'd come in and, and we just blow it up on him. <laughs> and it's just because we just had so much talent, you know, from an offensive standpoint, it was just very difficult for them to kind of contain us. And so right, yeah. beating him 6-1 in London, you know what I mean? Knowing Chris it, and it just how much it ate away at him, I think at the end of the game, if I recall correctly, was we had a power play and they put out Andy Bezo, Darren Banks, and I don't remember who the two D were. And all we kept saying was, don't dump it in. Just keep the puck away from these guys because they were just looking for reasons to take run at, runs at us. Right. You know what I mean? So, yeah. and we knew it. And, but you're just like, oh my God, look how tough this, like they were pretty tough guys. And you're just like, yeah, you know what? I go, we got to keep the puck away. Like we almost, didn't want to set up a power play in their zone. We just wanted to keep it out and keep it moving just to end the game. Right. Got you. Yeah. But Chris was upset about losing. And, you know, he has the old school mentality going, okay, we'll send the message for the next game. Yeah. And we just kind of sat there and went, okay, let's uh, don't even dump it in. Don't even dump it. <laughs> <laughs> After the game, was there much celebrating um, because you'd won the league championship? You know what? I go, there was so much uh, we were going through that year. I, I don't even think there was really celebrations anymore you know i mean um at that point and even when we won the playoffs i go hey we're happy we won and stuff like that but it was like it was ruined a little bit it was a little bit it was taken away from us because that's what you've gone through what we were dealing with and we just were more proving a point that you know what 
despite everything, we'll go out and win. You know what I mean? Like we, we knew we were that good and we just thought, you know what, we'll just show everyone. And, and that was it. Like there was no other reason uh, to look at it because they go, yeah, what are we celebrating? We just fought for, you know, just to get paid, you know, yeah. our salary. We, we fought to do this, but again, like I mentioned earlier, we we're all professionals and, you know, we have a lot of pride, you know what I mean? So when you go on the ice, you're going to play. So if you're on the ice, you're playing. And, and like I said, for all 17 guys on the Steeler team that year, they, there's not one bad thing I can say about any of them because, you know, there was a lot of quality guys and, and, and you know, Steve Carpenter, who I didn't know you would know. Yeah. You know, just as an example, just he played hard all the time. We all just wanted to follow that. Him, Kale Short, Andre Malo, you know, all those guys, like we just, we just played hard. And, you know, if we did that, we knew that we'd come out on top more than we'd come out on the bottom. And guys out, other guys stepped up. You know what I mean? That's how that team was built. They, they brought in not only quality players, but quality people. Well, the Steelers completed the Grand Slam with a 2-1 win over the London Knights uh, playoff final. And when the season was over, were there any exit meetings with the club? There wasn't. You know what? It was more it was scattering. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. People were glad to get away. Yeah, guys were tired. They wanted to go home. Yeah. You know, I'm sure management wanted us to leave to get rid of the apartments, the cars, you know, right. all that stuff with everything yeah. that was going on. It was a pretty quick exit for a lot of guys. Yeah. yeah. I think actually when we flew out, there was 13 of us flying out at the same time. Wow. Which is actually another funny story, which I'll tell you too, because that day was free. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You know what? It... it to show you how anticlimactic it was, even because it was in Nottingham, the, the final game, and after half the team went home and half the team stayed. So half of us went back to Sheffield and, and yeah. some stayed because we could have stayed and had a great time and yeah. partied. And I go, and that's probably what was common from years before. But guys were just like, nah, let's get out of here. You know what I mean? Like, we won, let's just go home, get ready. Yeah. We'll, we'll go home for the summer and, you know, recharge because well, it was mentally draining dealing with the stuff off the ice. And, it's just a shame that after all you'd been through as a team, after all you'd won, I mean, the Grand Slam, for God's sake, that's all you wanted to do. That's, uh, yeah, it's such a shame, really. Well, and, and it also caused a divide in the room, like I mentioned earlier. Like, yeah. you, you know, I mean, like Rick and Blazer were seen as management. Yeah. You know what I mean? Which was an unfair thing to me. They were very clear on their positions. They wanted to play. They wanted to keep going. I go, so that was their position. You know what I mean? Like that. And okay. You know, no different than uh, Dennis or, or, or Paul or anyone that didn't want to play, you know, I wasn't in that camp, but I go, okay, well, I understand your position. You know what I mean? Like, I don't dislike you. I don't have an issue with you, but I go, it just caused the divide among the players because some were so sure. adamant both ways. And, you know, I think in the end it wasn't, Hey, yeah. Hey, Dennis, let's go celebrate. It's like, Hey, Dennis, great, great year. You know, go home, you know, relax. There's no hard feelings, but there's no, let's celebrate together, you know, let's party together. Cause I go, and I, and I'm not picking on Dennis. I'm it's just saying, I'm using him as an example. It's just saying, cause if I pick on Dennis, he might come find me and I don't want that either. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I go, yeah, that was, that was a long time. And, and, you know, we had our differences through the year on maybe what we thought, you know, could be done, but in the end, you know what? We, we won, we were made whole. Let's just all move on. And yeah, that's sure. kind of more what it was. And so we went back to Sheffield Arena and I think Simsy was there. And it's still, this is one of the funniest things I've seen in a long time. So we were standing up on, in the corners of the rink, they have those stairs that go up where you can get into the rink or when that's people right. come out. Yeah. And so we were there and there was a lot of fans at the rink. You know what I mean? That had come to see us when we got there. It was a tradition that that's what they did after you'd won and playoffs. The team traveled back and the fans would always wait for them to celebrate with them. 
Yeah. So like I said, I, I think there was about 10 or 12 of us. It wasn't a full team anyway. So a good majority of us were there. And, yeah. and so we're up top and there's a lot of fans and they're, you know, they're asking for each guy to speak and, you know, everyone's saying, yeah, you know, hey, despite everything was good here, <laughs> you guys, you know, the fans were great. Yeah. Thank you. Stuff like that. And Dennis got up there and they go, yeah, you know, I want to thank you guys for all your support and that. He goes, but, you know, to be honest, uh, I don't think you're going to see a lot of these guys back here next year. <laughs> oh, <laughs> which was kind of like, oh, okay. And, and Mike O'Neill, who was, who was a brilliant guy and just witty, and he, he goes, that's because we're going to be standing over there. And you pointed to another place we could be standing. <laughs> like, and it just, you know, like it just, like, we're Dennis. Well, good like, save, that. Good save. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like, you're, you're, the fans are here celebrating and, you're just telling the most disappointing <laughs> thing. So yeah. yeah, it's, you know, it's, Mike saved it. And, and I really liked Mike. He was, you know, obviously him and, and Dennis and Paul were all very close and, and, sure. and kind of in that camp together. But I go, like I said, I go, I'm friends with all of them. And, you know, the, all of them were great, great guys in their own right. Like, you know, I enjoyed playing with them and being with them. And uh, I know that was tough for them because they didn't want to make it seem that it was as great as it, what happened. Yeah. because of what we just went through. But you know what? It was taken away from the fans who, you know what, paid the money to come watch us play. And, sure, they, and they deserve to kind of participate in it with us. So it was kind of funny that that, that was kind of said. And uh, uh, we all kind of had a laugh about that because it was kind of a funny way to end the whole thing, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, so you went on to have four seasons in Europe. You'd played twice in Italy, once in Germany, and then Austria. But did you have any offers from UK clubs to return to the country? You know what? I never heard, actually heard from any of the clubs again. Really? Yeah. When I went to Italy the next year, I actually had a pretty good year and, and kind of was setting myself up. And fortunately, I got hurt in the very last game of our playoff. Oh, yeah. I got hit in the knee. I partially tore my patella tendon and had a bunch Ooh. of micro fractures. And, and so, you know, from the year I had, I was able to go to the DEL, which was the league I always wanted to go to because it's a real quality league. Uh, sure, yeah. PC Droon was there that year too uh, on the same team, which was kind of nice. And you know what? It just uh, I went. I was just never the same after that. Yeah. I went to camp and I couldn't. I couldn't walk. I couldn't skate. Oh gosh. Yeah. I, I go on the ice like I. Sorry, I could walk, but I couldn't skate. And so I actually had to go to practice the first one and fall into the boards. To make it look like oh. kind of hurt myself over there. Yeah. And I will say one thing about, you know, the medicine or the, the physiotherapy tactics they use in Europe are far superior to here. I think we're starting to integrate them more over here, but oh, yeah. you know, the, they looked at it. They, they said, okay. And that's where I found out about the patella tendon and all these micro fractures where blood was going into the bones. And there's so many of them. He goes, that's why it hurts so much. Oh, wow. And they said, uh, we'll have you on the ice in 10 days. And they did. Oh, but I was never the same because, you know, you compensate, like I never built the leg up that summer the way I wanted to. Right. Yeah. I was always a little bit behind and then I ended up hurting my other knee and then yeah. ankle and a few things. So it was, it was a tough year in Germany, but yeah, I never heard anything from England again. Shane, it's been a real pleasure talking with you today. And thank you so much for coming on the old time hockey UK podcast. Ken, it's been a great pleasure for me too. And I think it's a great thing that you're doing because it's great to hear stories from, you know, guys, you know, that you played with and seeing how they're doing now. And, you know, I really enjoyed reliving some of those stories with you and, and what went on and back in the day and give me a nice chance to go back down memory lane. And I really enjoyed it too. So once again, thanks for that. And I'll catch you later. Yes. Take care of yourself and talk soon. Memories, insights, and anecdotes of hockey heroes. The Old Time Hockey UK Podcast. 
Thanks for a really interesting and enjoyable interview, Shane. I really appreciate the honesty. We're now at 73 Old Time Hockey UK podcast episodes, and all are available for free on Pocket Casts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast app you prefer. Have you visited our shop recently? We've just uploaded more vintage Powerplay magazines, including some very early tabloid editions from 1991. There's also Ice Hockey News Reviews, Ice Hockey Annuals and other hockey books, plus UK hockey card sets and individual NHL player cards, all available in our shopping section. There's also t-shirts and sweatshirts too at giveaway prices. You'll find plenty of these goodies at www.oldtimehockeyuk.com forward slash NSNS for new shop. Why not check it out right now? It's shout out time. A massive shout out goes to all of my Patreon patrons. To Paul Blackburn, Tommy Boll, Oscar Brownsword, Rob Clayton, Colin Dunn, Susie Hatch, Sean Holland, John Hume Spry, Jim Murden, Jeff Povey, Chris Saddington, and last but definitely not least, Andrew Williamson. You really help keep the show alive. Thanks, guys. It's really very, very much appreciated. Speaking of Patreon, can you help support the show by becoming a patron? For a minimum of just £2 per episode, you can really help the show. You'll find details at www.oldtimehockeyuk.com forward slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. There's also a page link in the show notes of this episode. Okay, so what else do I need to mention? Well, there's our email sign-up box on our website, and then there's our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages too. Simply search for Old Time Hockey UK. All links are available in this episode's show notes. And finally, a big thank you once again to Shane McCosh for coming onto the show. As always, a big, big thank you to you, the listener. And remember, if you'd like to hear your hockey hero from the past, email me at O-T-H-P-U-K at gmail.com That's O-T-H-P-U-K at gmail.com And I'll see what I can do. Sadly today, we have to say goodbye to a former Nottingham Panthers D-man. Canadian Greg MacDonald followed his father Bill to Lower Parliament Street to wear the black and gold. In two seasons during the early 1980s, Greg played 38 times for the Panthers, scoring 48 goals, had 42 assists and 176 penalty minutes. Sadly, in late August, he lost his long battle with cancer. He was just 62 years old. We send our deepest condolences to his family and friends. Rest in peace, Greg, and thanks for the memories. Until the next time, I'm Ken Abbott, and I'll catch you later. Thank you for tuning into the Old Time Hockey UK podcast. If you enjoyed the show, we would be thrilled if you could head over to iTunes and leave a review and rating. If you would like to receive updates on future episodes, please join our mailing list at www.oldtimehockeyuk.com. Old Time Hockey UK. The puck drops now.